Welcome to the Westminster Effects Doxology Podcast. We explore popular practices, songs, and ideas in the modern church world in the light of Sola Scriptura and Tota Scriptura. I'm Cody Fields, president of Westminster Effects. Go buy stuff for your guitar at westminstereffects.com. You can join the discussion in the Westminster Effects Doxology Podcast Lounge on Facebook. Make sure you subscribe and comment and share the show and all that good stuff. Blah, 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 blah. You know how this goes. You know how podcast promotions go. Share it. Review it. Blah, blah, blah. Joining me in person, we have... Hey, everybody. It's Bradley Cox, pastor at Resurrection Church in Greer, South Carolina. Shall we just jump in? Let's do it. So the main topic that I have, the title I have, the term or phrase that I conjured up was deprofessionalizing church. And kind of the the backing of that was one, why does the church gather? You know, we, we answer that question a lot, but it's always good to go over it. Uh, but two, what's your job mm. as a pastor mm. or even my job as a deacon? Yep. Uh, answering those things does matter. And, uh, so why, why are we doing this in the first place? Well, I, I mean, we, we've talked about it, I think, in previous episodes. I mean, the primary purpose of the church gathered is worship and discipleship. Mm-hmm. And discipleship is part of worship, worship a part of discipleship. Um, and that means, if you play that tape all the way out, that the the gathering of saints at a local church on the Lord's Day, the, the primary focus is believers, not unbelievers. Right. Uh, again, that doesn't mean we're not mindful of unbelievers that might be among us and um, our language, our our invitation, our on-ramps into the life of the church. I think it's important for those things to be clear and visible. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for us to not be so um, immersed in insider language that there's nothing ever given by way of acknowledgement to those who might not be churched, might not be saved, both. Mm-hmm. For example, when I, you know, on Sunday when I was teaching, I made reference to some Old Testament um, historical content. Yep. That I, for the 95% of the people in the room, I could have just said, hey, you remember when, mm-hmm. and not rehearsed any of the deta- the con- contextual details. But I chose to rehearse some contextual details for the benefit of those who either aren't saved, aren't churched, or don't know enough Bible to know those events right? or all the above. So I, my point is the primary focus of the, the gathering is the saints. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think, is not the, the predominant... I don't know, you, you might push back on this from a statistical standpoint. I, I would say, in my experience, that's not the the predominant focus of local churches mm-hmm. that I've encountered. Yeah, I mean, at least in the in terms of the, I guess you could say, popular churches, you know, sure. the megachurch culture, uh, the seeker-sensitive culture that has run rampant, and even uh, churches whose primary emphasis is generally the believer, they often still skew evangelistic in a response time or something like that. Um, But, you know, back to your, uh, back to your point of it being for the saints and keeping in mind that there may be people who aren't as familiar. There are also new saints, very young believers. You know, so, so I can throw out, 
uh, a term, e- even a basic term like the Trinity, and you know, someone who's been a Christian for a month might not have that, or or even ten years might not have that nailed down properly, just because they haven't been discipled. That's exactly to that right. point yet. That's exactly right, and it's and it's why you know I aim my teaching at going deep into the text. Um, but putting the cookies on the lowest shelf possible mm-hmm. so that, mm-hmm. you know, the seasoned believers among in, in our church, if, if you will, are, are going to benefit from the deep dive into the text. Mm-hmm. But I'm also putting the cookies low enough on the shelf that young believers could benefit from it as well. Right. And at the very least, maybe providing a step stool. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I, I think I think, you know, if you follow the ministries of people like uh, R.C. Sproul, John Piper, mm-hmm. uh, Tim Keller, who just passed away. Yeah. Um, was I, not woke, by the way. I will die on that hill. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, even guys like Matt Chandler, which, you know, sometimes I go back and forth with Chandler on how good of an expositor he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think those guys are, they read Scripture well. Yeah. And I think I see in their ministries and their teachings putting the cookies on the lowest shelf possible, at least providing a step stool. Right. So I think that's important. Right. So so we gather on the Lord's Day. Mm-hmm. We, in the teaching at least, we're saying, here's here's what's up. Let's mm-hmm. dig. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, here we might provide some extra explanations. Like, there's going to be things explained that we might not necessarily explain in a small group setting where I know everybody, you know, right. since, since I lead my small group with my wife and, you know, I, I have a general feel for who's, you know, who's where, whatever. And so I can throw out something like general equity theonomy mm-hmm. <laughs> and my group knows me. I know them. I probably don't have to explain that one a ton, right? Uh, but if that were to come up in a class setting or a or a pulpit setting, probably gonna have to unpack that one a lot more. Like probably over the space of several lessons, you know, little chunks here and there, or any number of other topics, right? And so there is a general theme for the context of the saints worshiping together. Because you have more people mm-hmm. from more backgrounds as opposed to a, a small group setting where, yes, you have people from different backgrounds, but in in the context of a group that's been doing that for a while, you know, you know where each other are. You're probably on the same page on a lot of stuff <laughs> if you've been putting up with each other for a decent amount of time, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to maybe a general church setting where there are some people who are still getting on the same page of like this whole Calvinism thing, sure. right? Stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I think whoever is the primary <clears throat> teaching pastor in a local church has a has an extraordinary challenge if if he is focused on equipping saints. Yes. For the work of the ministry, which is Paul's words in Ephesians, which I think you got, part of your question was. What is my primary role? What yes. are the what? Are, what's the primary role of an elder mm-hmm. or, a, or a group of elders in a local church? And I think it's that. I think it's equip the saints. That doesn't mean that deacons don't do that as well. Or right. Ministers within the church they do, but I think the elders shoulder the primary responsibility of that. Mm-hmm. 
And if you're communicating to the larger audience on a regular basis, you have a challenge of um, making sure that you are able to connect with everybody in the room, Mm -hmm. which I don't think is only a skill thing. Like, you know, we talk about your question is framed with, you know, being not trying to be so professional. Is that the way you? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'll change the title by the time this thing comes out. (laughs) But, you know, in my mind, you know, a a professionalist approach to local church ministry is, is one that I think would be mostly or entirely focused on the, the skill and the trade aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Right. There's certain things that we do and we can learn to do them well, do them better, Mm -hmm. i.e. be effective communicators. If we're the primary teaching pastor. Yep. But as a, as a teaching pastor in a local church who's focused on equipping the saints, I have to be, I have to be sensitive to the Holy spirit in the moment of preaching. Yeah. Um, that's why I am not a fan of video preaching, right? You cannot do that. It's professional. It allows you to pipe the, the top tier communicator or communicators into multiple sites Mm -hmm. Right, um, and and I get that. I mean, they're they're, they're just in a local church. They're going to be some that are just better skilled. Right. At, you know, my Brian Onkin likes to say pedagogical competency. Like, yeah, there's they're just some that are going to be better at that. So you can do the more air quotes professional thing and pipe them in via video. But there, there's no way for a video to be sensitive to what God's doing in the room, and particularly someone who may be on the other side of the state to actually know what's going on in that room. Exactly. Uh, and on even further, that particular elder or pastor, whatever you want to call him, uh, doesn't know all the situations in that room when he's across the state. Yes. As opposed to you, like, uh, if, if you're hammering home a point maybe about God's justice and you know someone in the church has been terribly wronged. Maybe maybe a husband has bailed on his wife and kids. I don't know of any of those situations here right now, for the record. Um, so I'm literally making something up. Right. Uh, it's not top of mind for any of you podcast listeners. Um, so maybe a, a husband has left his wife, and you start hammering on God's justice, and you can see this sense of relief come over this wife that's been left, Right. You can't do that through video. No, you can't. And, and you and you can't. You really can't do that if if the church gets too big either. No, uh, because that's true. you're just not gonna know the ins and outs, and and it's hard enough as it is with the three hundred ish that we have at the moment. You know, when in Luke's gospel, when um, the the people open up the roof and lower the paralytic down. Yep, and. Jesus, of course, looks at the paralytic who's obviously been let down by his friends mm-hmm. because he and his friends want him want Jesus to heal him of his paralysis. Mm-hmm. But Jesus looks at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. Yeah. And then Luke goes on to describe that Jesus, I forget the exact words, but it's something to the effect of the, the religious leaders or Pharisees that were there witnessing this he knew what was going on in their hearts. Mm-hmm. He knew they were asking a question. It, 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 the context there clearly indicates they didn't ask the question out loud. Right. They were pondering, who can forgive sins but God alone? Mm-hmm. 
And Jesus discerned that. Now, Which is a good question. <laughs> it's a great question. It's the right question. Yeah. And Jesus did this on purpose. That, you know, some people read that and think, okay, well, Jesus is the divine son of God, and so he can read people's minds supernaturally, and that's what he did, and therefore he then addresses, okay, let me, let me demonstrate for you that I do have the authority to forgive sins by healing this paralytic. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that we necessarily have to conclude that he was reading their minds in a way that we are incapable of because we're not the divine son of God. Right. It could have been that he just, and I would argue, with the help and aid of the Holy Spirit, he sensed something in the room. Mm. He sensed that they had a question. In other words, you know, you, we all know what it's like to, to be in a room full of people, and maybe we're talking, and we get a read that something we said resonated with the folks yep. or maybe something might have offended them or they didn't understand that. Yep. Like you see looks on people's faces and whatnot. And this, this is the advantage of having a small group is I can say, did that make sense? And people be like, no, it didn't make exactly. sense. <laughs> but in a, in a larger setting where you're, there's not that give and take, you do have to kind of look at, read the room, look at people's yep. faces. And what, what I would suggest is that in the moment of teaching a pastor, it's, when a pastor does that, it's not only our natural ability to read and get a sense of the vibe in the room. Mm-hmm. I think the Holy Spirit puts a supernatural edge on that. Oh, yeah. And, yes, I might read a look on somebody's face and then be nudged by the Spirit to, I can't tell you how many times this happens, Cody. I'm in the middle of teaching, and I don't plan to hammer on this one particular thing but I sense something in the room. I see some looks on people's faces, and I feel nudged by the Spirit to unpack that a little bit more. Right. And you can't do that over video. You can't do that if you're so, again, air quotes, prepared mm-hmm. that there's no flexibility to be sensitive to what's going on in the moment. And I think that's where you know, we prepare like professionals, and we, we, we study and we devote ourselves, we give ourselves to whatever type of ministry we're involved in, giving our absolute best effort. But then we're also unlike professionals in that we we really do depend on the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus did in the moment of preaching, teaching, Mm -hmm. small group leading, any type of ministry, to be sensitive to what he's doing with those people. And and I would say what you see a lot in the megachurch culture, the seeker-sensitive culture, is even if they don't have their preparation notes in front of them, they've memorized that thing. Probably. and Or they're reading off a teleprompter, some of them I would bet, yep. uh, which is actually very accessible technology. I actually have a little teleprompter app on my iPad, for the record. Yep. Um, which, it's weird. It's weird to get used to that. But anyway, um, they're outright memorizing the thing or reading it and there is no room to be sensitive, right? Uh, because Perhaps. because of how they've set up their churches to be programs for uh, evangelization and some self-help. Yeah, and I think really, uh, I mean, there, there's a mega church here in town that they're under different leadership now, but I know for a fact years ago um, it was... They, they weren't hiding the fact that they saw themselves as 
an organization focused on weekly events mm-hmm. called Sunday morning experiences. Yes. Like they, we are an event based organization and we put on an event every week mm-hmm. for people to come. And yes, in, in some level or another, they might hear the gospel, but it's ultimately to benefit their lives and, and help them be better right. people and whatnot. And, and so they just provide all of these things for this weekend event. And I, I'm not saying that's entirely wicked, but I don't think that's I, I don't think that's a local church. Like, right. and I and I think if right. it, 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 I almost appreciated the fact that they seem to own that. Mm, we're yeah. not really a we're not really a local church. We're we're a very large organization that puts on these Christian events every week. Mm. Okay, yeah. I mean, I I might I'm not saying that's the ideal or optimum or that, that's least, what I want to do. At least you're honest. At least you're honest about it. Which, I, if if I think you're talking about who I think you are, if if that's all lining up, uh, I think they've switched their focus somewhat lately. Somewhat, from what I understand. Yeah, yeah. From what and, I understand. and good for them. Yeah, and good for them. I, uh, I I know one of the guys who's one of the primary teachers now, and and I I have a you know, I have good respect for for him and his love for the word and. Mm-hmm. Um, Obviously, we have we have some significant differences, but sure, you know they're not out of the kingdom by any stretch. But you know what's interesting? Like this guy that I know that is is one of the primary teachers there now at this particular mega church we're talking about. He is clearly, clearly Cody, a gifted evangelist, mm-hmm. not a pastor. Mm, yeah, and 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 I I realize some that people, is a difference. Some people might push back at me on this, but you know Ephesians chapter four, Jesus gave gifts to the church, and I think there are four, not five: uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers. Mm-hmm. I think pastor teacher mm-hmm. is the same thing, right? Um, apostles are just sent ones, mm-hmm. okay. Um, Prophets, those that speak the oracles of God, we're not talking about Christian fortune tellers. We're just talking about people who have a sense of the heart of God in the moment and are gifted to share that. It's always mm-hmm. going to line up with the word. Mm-hmm. Evangelists, clearly, people that are gifted to make inaugural proclamations of the good news to unbelievers. Yes. But those people can draw crowds, man. Yeah. And lots of people are going to f- get saved in their wake. Yep, and I'm not saying that a pastor teacher doesn't at times become an evangelist. I led somebody to Christ last week, mm-hmm. but it's it, it a pastor teacher is is in my mind the person who should be the primary lead voice in a local church, which is a gathering of saints on the Lord's day, at least among the other things that a local church might do, right? In order to lead believers in worship and disciple believers equip them because this is what paul says all four of those gifts are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry right and the work of the ministry is not less than evangelism i think it's more than that because i think there's a baseline level at which every believer participates with jesus in apostolic prophetic evangelistic and shepherding type ministry Mm mm-hmm there's, I think every believer on some level is going to be shepherding some people. It's going to have opportunity to share the gospel with unbelievers. It's going to be sent by Jesus in various different ways. And in some way or another, we'll have a prophetic edge to what they're... I think that's baseline. Yeah. 
but I think there are above the baseline gifts in the church that are meant to equip saints for the work of the ministry. All of us do that. That doesn't mean that an evangelist can't pastor, but you've got to have a pastor-teacher gifting alongside that evangelist in order to, I think, have an, a healthy local church. Yeah, and you, and you look at the rest of uh, that passage in Ephesians 4, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Yeah. The church is meant to grow up. Yeah. You know, it's it's obviously growing deep, but also growing up, right? Uh, what is it? Hebrews, let's leave the elementary Other doctrine of, of Christ, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, a lot of us see that and say, wait, 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 what? But what he's look talking, at what he lists as elementary there. Yeah. What, what, <laughs> what, what does he list? It, it He lists, uh, like, Resurrection, judgment, repentance of sins. Yeah. Like it it's it, it it's the basics. But you know, a lot of Christians don't have their heads around that. Mm-hmm. And what but so it, first of all, it, it would be worth us worth our time, I can't talk today, to give our attention to what the writer of Hebrews says is elementary. Mm-hmm. And and expect that we were are to grow up and grow beyond those things in and to look at what the writer of Hebrews lauds as the the deeper things, and that is Christ, more about the glories of Christ. Yep, that's the better. That's the better in the book of Hebrews. This new covenant is better because of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so, anyway, it it would be right for a local church to expect to grow up and grow deep more than they grow out. Yeah. Like yeah. With, that is, it's not that growing out is wrong. And, and I don't think the new Testament is opposed to mega church and large churches. Sure. But I do think it's just interesting. Tim Keller just died. And, and I, I sent this video to the elders, the last video he did, they were having their annual conference or something for all their campuses. Mm-hmm. And they recorded, Tim Keller recorded 10 minutes. It was the last words he spoke really to his church. Mm-hmm. And in that 10-minute video, he talks about a lot of things, but one of which is he really felt like the future of Redeemer was more smaller congregations. Mm-hmm. He said at our biggest, we got up to like 5,500, but he said, I think long-term we're going to be most effective as I think it was at least six, maybe more campuses of 800 or less. Yep. And I was like, I love that. I love that yep. that is yep. being lauded more. Yeah, because the the deeper you you grow, that does necessarily enable growing out more. Like, it, like, like if you look at a tree, those roots have to go pretty deep for it to to grow up and then grow out and provide shade. Exactly. Uh, not to. I'm. I'm not going to the parable of the mustard seed here. I'm just. <laughs> right. uh, have you? Are you familiar? Uh, here's here's something that would just rankle any seeker sensitive uh, sensibilities. Are you familiar with the um, the Eastern Church's phrase, "The doors, the doors," with communion? No. No. So in in more Eastern right churches, and obviously we're gonna have issues with that in the first place. Uh, but this goes back almost to the very beginning of even east-west type of emphases in the church is when they when they start communion someone will say the doors the doors and 
if you are not baptized and catechized and know the Apostles' Creed, you're expected to get out. <laughs> and then they close the doors behind you. Wow. <laughs> and only those who are in the church, baptized, know the, the Apostles' Creed, etc., those are the people who are allowed to take communion. Well, and that, that, that's offensive to our Western sensibilities. Because um, we want everyone to feel included and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and it, you know, it, it, it offends our, you know, I might say it this way. This is going to probably, you know, cause the cage stage Calvinists in our group here <laughs> to go crazy. But, you know, it offends our Western Arminian sensibilities. You know, our Charles yeah. Finney-influenced, yeah. Billy Graham-saturated yeah. minds as it relates to the local church. That, that's and, not just as I am. No. <laughs> And and I, I'm not saying that that's what we should do. Right. I'm not advocating for us to do that. Nobody's here advocating at for that. But there is like a, I I think there is a significant shift in mindset that is happening in more and more local churches as it relates to what we're talking about. Yes. They're they're less and less inclined to focus more on reaching the outsider, as opposed to what you know what I've heard some people call evangelizing the church. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, there, there's a huge need for that. Yep. Because, you know, I find, like, we've had a couple of things come up lately in small groups that um, has led to me actually going mm-hmm. to meet with these groups yep. and having, because there are theological doctrinal questions that have been raised uh, yep. on the heels of something going on with somebody in the group or whatever. And it's really amazing to see how little people know. And understand, mm-hmm. right. even though they sit in our churches every week, yep. Until the stuff hits the fan, proverbially, and and their minds are like going there. That's why I think both large group and small group gatherings are needed. Yep. In order to shepherd people through life and and you know indoctrinate them with um, you know biblical truth that you know undergirds them. You know when life gets. Not only when life gets hard, but especially when it gets yeah, and, hard. Yeah, and honestly, that's why you saw so many people panic during, you know, election seasons or mm-hmm. or even uh, during COVID or whatever is because most of our churches just weren't prepared. No, they, they didn't weren't. have that theological foundation to look back on and say, no, we think this about these particular things, and that informs our thinking on these subjects, and this is how I should think. Yeah. And instead it had been a free for all. Yeah. And that's that's when you have uh churches trying to herd cats. Yeah. <laughs> Basically yeah. is what it turned into in some instances. Not all of them. Not all of them by any stretch, but but I think that ha- the last several years has been a wake up call of sorts that you know, if if we're going to weather this storm, this, you know, cultural storm with the alphabet mafia and all all of the shenanigans going on, like we got to get rooted we have to get rooted, and we have to be willing to have hard conversations yeah. uh, that aren't comfortable and aren't easy. And I, I think the primary role of a pastor, you know, it, it, I for a long time, I've said this before, I thought that I had to be a CEO-type leader who could stand up and speak on Sunday mornings like a guru. Right. And that was a pressure that almost killed me until I was trained and discipled by uh, one seasoned pastor in particular, as well as a couple others, 
that that's not at all what I'm called to do or be. Mm-hmm. And, th- and there's a huge difference between being a guru and being a generalist, mm-hmm. like knowing a little bit about a bunch of things. Because like if you talk to me, like we have this kind of this uh, mutual musical foundation, right? Mm-hmm. We have a uh, we're both sports fans, so there are things that we know about where we can just kind of throw things around, right? Mm-hmm. But if you talk to someone else in the church who might be a plumber, you're you're going to learn a couple things about plumbing, yeah, no, no <laughs> even if it's just a little bit. Yep. And because you're involved somewhat in the business dealings of the church, you're going to know a little bit about how a business runs. You have uh, to, but but that doesn't mean that you're a guru who knows everything about everything. Yeah, and, it, it's it, generalism. I think provides a wider basis for wisdom. Anyway, there's a there's a college that I'm familiar with that um, I won't name it, but there's a there's a school of Christian ministries there, and um, I know that there are some some significant changes that are taking place in that the, the academics of the school of Christian ministries, really a shift away from so much theology and Bible, not mm-hmm. not doing away with it. But, but sort of a tipping of the scales more toward some of the practical, methodological, organizational aspects of leading a church mm. and less away from the what I would call the pastoral, biblical aspects of leading a church. The, the whole word and prayer thing. Exactly. <laughs> and, and I get that because, you know, like when I was coming out of college, you know, part of the what people talked about was, you know, we get these guys all trained up in theology, but they have no clue how to run an organization. Mm-hmm. And that was a legitimate gripe because I honestly, I came into local church ministry and I didn't, I didn't know what to do when it came with like, um, like the first church I worked in, and this was back in the late nineties. I don't know. The annual budget might've been 1.5 million, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, maybe that's even too much. I don't know. Let's just say it was 1.5 million. I had no clue about budget versus actual, yep. you know, your, your income, you know, you know, your, like your balance sheet and, and, and all that debt to, like I'd never managed all those kinds of details before. Right. And thankfully I wasn't the lead pastor. Um, but I think there's part of me that pushes back and saying, we need to train guys more in that than we do in the biblical pastoral aspects. If anything, that should be an add-on. It almost, I almost feel like we should be training guys in college and seminary as to how to delegate that stuff out in a biblically responsible way. Yeah. I told somebody the other day, if I could hire a number two here to run this church and literally that person just told me where I needed to show up, I would be perfectly fine <laughs> with that. Yeah. We need you to show up and train these small group leaders or speak at this service. Like I, I, I'm not saying I would ever do this, but right. th- I would literally be okay with that because I feel like the, the primary thing I'm called to is to shepherd the people. Right. From a, from a discipleship standpoint, a spiritual standpoint, not just be a great organizational leader, but the organization has to be led. And so... This is a challenge. What we're talking about, and um, I don't. I have more questions than answers. I think. Yeah. Well, it's a long-term project, just like anything, right? And especially with the uh, explosion and you know the whole explosion of young, restless, reformed type of stuff, which has really gotten into 
middle-aged and reformed <laughs> at this point, right? That's true. Uh, where, you know, you have these uh, congregations that have reformed and they're figuring stuff out because because they weren't part of, you know, something like the PCA or ARBCA or whatever. And so we're, we're kind of having to figure this out while while making friends with people maybe who were reformed all along. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. We'll get there. Yeah. Other people will get there too. I, I, and people are waking up to it. I wish there was more out there in terms of resource, guidance, encouragement for pastors and churches that are reforming. Mm-hmm. They're in the process. Right. You know, like I, I, I've made it clear on this podcast that it took me about 10 years. Mm-hmm. And then it took our church another five, probably. And it's still going. It's still going. Yeah. And I I have never found, the closest thing I found to an encouragement pastorally, if your church is in the process of reforming, or mm-hmm. you as a pastor, elder, are in the process of coming to the doctrines of grace, um, was John MacArthur talking about that he became... Um, a Calvinist teaching through the Gospel of Matthew. This was probably in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. And he didn't immediately stand up in front of his church and put Tulip up in front of them. Right. He gradually brought his church along, giving them time to really go through the process that he went through. Yeah. And that was, that's really the, like somebody ought to write a book on that. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting that so many of the bigger names became reformed during their ministries like i know piper did or yes. at least in school right he school was a professor yeah uh wilson but he led his church to become blatantly right. reformed right doug wilson uh became reformed while he was a minister and his church became reformed during that and and obviously he he started uh more of a broad evangelical credo baptist i think he was raised southern baptist and so he became calvinist first and I don't remember if he became post-millennial or paedo-baptist first, but one of those really caused a ruckus in his church. I don't remember which one of those it was. And so you've got at least those three. Uh, Sproul got saved right before college, right? And so he wasn't yeah, raised... Yeah, a Pentecostal movement. Yeah, and so he wasn't raised Reformed. Nope. Um, and <laughs> I, th- I just think that's really interesting that all of these larger 20th late 20th, early 21st century Christian names did not start reformed in the slightest. Well, yeah, and... and but there's something to it. There is something to it, and I think that I find, I find that I meet, I've met with, encountered pastors over the years who are, they have become reformed mm-hmm. because they, here's just the bottom line, you become a pastor, guess what? you got to read your Bible. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and and when you read your Bible, if you're giving attention to it, you know, it it it's it's pretty obvious that you know, I think Piper says it this way or some maybe Piper quoted somebody saying this, exposition is on the side of the Calvinist. Oh yeah. Philosophy oh, yeah. maybe on the side of the Arminian. Mm-hmm. But the you know, I find that guys they're reading their Bibles because they're teaching the Bible and they've become reformed in their thinking, but they're leading churches who have no clue even what that is. Right. And they're struggling to know how do I address this? And and maybe they avoid Romans nine 
altogether because of that. But yeah. there needs to be there needs to be more out there, more more places and spaces for those kinds of conversations because you know it, it's it's so easy to get caught up in the methodological aspects of leading a church mm-hmm. the, and being a professional as opposed to shepherding a group of believers in the depths of their salvation and the joy of, of worshiping a sovereign God so that they are equipped to scatter from your church into their world and seek the good of the city, invest, mm-hmm. pray, yep. be a part of the culture without being stained by it and laud the glories of Christ yep. in it. And there's there's legitimate energy behind the Reformed movement if you want to call it that anyway because we've latched on to something of substance yeah i remember uh barnabas piper kind of joking on the happy rant podcast several years ago he's like we got together for the gospel which really means together for the calvinism (laughs) but what you never see you never see conferences of together for the free will (laughs) (laughs) which i think says a lot (laughs) because Oh, if if it's really just hey, let's harp on our free will. Okay, like who cares? Isn't that interesting? I've never even really thought about it that way. But you really don't see communal efforts that revolve around Arminian theology. Yeah, um, Be- because it's ultimately pretty dang empty. Yeah, but when but when you actually have uh, the glory of God and the joy of His people, right? The uh, glorifying God and and enjoying Him forever as is lauded in Reformed theology, God gets all of the glory for all of it, all the way through, and we're to give thanks to him for everything. Mm-hmm. There you go. You're Reformed now. Yeah. <laughs> Shall yeah. we move on to the Inquisition? Good. Yep. And this is the Inquisition, where you... Submit questions to us, and we answer them on the fly. And you can submit those questions via a weekly post in the Westminster Effects Doxology Podcast Lounge. As is tradition, we start with Brian Morris. Uh, are you familiar with the whole Fernando Tatis Jr. thing? Not really. So, one, he hurt his wrist. He This guy is the now former shortstop and current center fielder for the San Diego Padres. Unbelievable talent. I think his contract is worth somewhere around... 300 and something million dollars mm. uh, broke his wrist and I'm pretty sure he did it with a motorcycle accident and was already going to miss most of last year and then miss the last half of last year with a performance enhancing drug suspension. Holy cow. So now he's back He's and he's doing Fernando Tatis Jr. things, but a lot of people were pretty irritated with him. And so Brian Morris asks, did Fernando Tatis Jr. actually do anything wrong with PEDs? He's, I get that he had a banned substance in his system, but he never played a professional game with it in his system. I would say yes, because you said, yeah, I won't do that stuff if I'm going to be part of this league. I mean, that, yeah, that, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's similar to... What, what banned substance was it? I don't remember. I don't remember honestly. Sometimes that gets a little fuzzy for me. It like, can, yeah. You know, like Clemson football has had a couple of players get suspended for some kind of substance they're taking in rehab. Yeah, that's you know, it, it's it's getting picked up on these drug tests, and apparently it's banned. And I'm not I'm not sure what the because it's one thing if somebody's injecting steroids, 
mm-hmm. or you know taking human growth hormones and stuff like yeah. that. It's another thing that some of these other banned substances may be involved in some sort of rehab from injury or mm-hmm. I don't know. Like context matters, but it does. He did agree to not take such things. So, what do you think about someone who's in seminary, say at Southern? Where they say, if you're going to go to school here, you can't drink alcohol. I I, th- I think you have to, if you're going to, you either have to make it clear you're not abiding by that and then be okay with it. Mm-hmm. Or you, uh, you just accept, like I, my good friend, Seth Kane, mm-hmm. who, uh, who is a, you know, Anglican rector. Uh, he did his graduate work at Wheaton. Mm-hmm. And when he was at Wheaton, he had to sign. At the time, Wheaton had a no alcohol policy. Right. So he would drink non alcoholic beer mm-hmm. during his seminary days there, however long that was, two years or something like mm-hmm. that, because he signed the thing. Right. It didn't mean he agreed with it, but that's what he's part of out there. Right. right? So if you're part of that, I think that I think that's biblical. And as and as things get more reformed, we're gonna have to worry less about that anyway. <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> Because I definitely did not sign anything or agree to anything like to be a deacon here saying uh, I wouldn't have a beverage. Well, the Bible does like not. That. The Bible does because, not forbid that. Because the Bible doesn't say anything. But like I, but I do think that it's not unbiblical if an organization, a seminary, a church, whatever, decides okay, alcohol is not going to be part of our culture, mm. and if you want to be a part of this, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 it's one thing to levy a conviction on somebody. It's one thing to have a standard mm-hmm. for your group, your membership, your organization, that if anybody wants to be a part of it, this, this is, these are the rules, yeah. right? Yeah. So I, I'm okay with that. I don't think that's unbiblical. I think Paul would say, you know, if, if you're going to be a part of this group, then you need to, mm-hmm. you need to defer. Yeah. I think, I think I would have fewer issues with that on other things, maybe. Uh, but since like alcohol is and you know, obviously this is a totally different subject than the question. Uh, but since alcohol is repeatedly called a blessing in scripture, right. And God taking away alcohol as part of judgments on people and stuff like that. I don't quite understand American teetotalism. Like I've actually studied this in college. <laughs> I took a, I took a class because I was a huge dork on 19th century religious movements and social reforms that they tried to push. Mm-hmm. And that was part of it, obviously, yeah. was the teetotal movement. And and no one before that in America had ever pushed for never drinking alcohol, to yeah, my knowledge. I, I think prohibition had a lot to do with it. Yeah. But I think, the too, like the – if you have a – like we have a couple of different Christian organizations here in Greenville that mm-hmm. are specifically – their, their ministry is to help people get off drugs and alcohol. Yeah. And so if you're going to work there, guess right. what? Right, right. You're not going to drink. Right. If, if you're going to be one of the people that counsels people coming off, that, that, that is a standard perhaps that makes sense for that organization. And I think it contextually should be presented as, we're not saying it's a sin. Sure, yeah, We're yeah, just yeah. saying this is a conviction for this ministry or sure. a standard for this ministry that if you want to be a part of it, you got to abide by. That's fair, and that's fair. Uh, second question from Brian Morris, because he submitted it last week, and we didn't get to it. He says, what does it look like to dismiss a pastor for his children not being submissive? How bad does this child have to be? And he's citing 1 Timothy 3, 5. Uh, and he said, this isn't just me venting about my kids. <laughs> 
So we don't have this issue at res. No. At, at, like in the slightest. But I, I think I, I think this is a passage, um, uh, you know, a, a qualification for elder in Scripture that is often misunderstood. Sure. The language Paul uses there is really that he must stand before his family well. Mm-hmm. There is no standard for, you know, no black and white standard there for if, if a, you know, should we disqualify John Piper right now because Abraham is off the reservation? Right. Like, did, did, no. You know, Abraham is a staunch atheist. Uh, who, um, or at least I, I guess he's an atheist. He's certainly an agnostic. He's deconstructed, mm-hmm. and he regularly, uh, with a huge amount of sarcasm, you know, comes at Christianity and Christian values, particularly fundamentalism, and, and with really bad arguments too. Really bad arguments. So, should we disqualify John Piper for that? And I and I think most people would retort with. You know he's not in the household anymore. Well, so. that's what I'm about right. to say. Like I, th- yeah. I think that you have to, you have to let a man, you know, raise his children and over a long period of time judge how well he's standing before them. Mm-hmm. And when those children become adults, they're responsible for their own actions. Right. And we shouldn't be dismissing elders just because their kids are a bit rambunctious. Right. It's really a matter of if we see underage children in the home being rebellious. There certainly might be some questions to ask, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I think that's something that just has to be walked out in community. And again, there better be a plurality of elders in, yeah. in order to do that. There's a huge difference between teenagers doing stupid teenager things, yeah. but which you know, a lot of the times are sinful. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a difference between you know whatever teenager doing whatever stupid, unwise, immature thing and a pattern of high-handed rebellion of, I don't care, I'm going to X, Y, Z, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Yeah, and even with that, I think, to me, you can look at a man's family and you can look at his children and you can tell whether or not he's standing before them, even if there's rebellion in the household. Sure. You know, if a if a pastor's daughter gets pregnant out of wedlock, I don't think that's an automatic disqualification. Right. She could have just been in the wrong place at the wrong time, and made a bad decision. Yep. You know, I, that that doesn't mean that he's not standing before his family well. I think you've got to, you know, first of all, he shouldn't even be considered for eldership without that part being vetted. You know, mm-hmm. is this man leading his family in prayer and in scripture at home? Is there a is there a consistency to not only what we see on the platform, but also what we sense is going on at the home when nobody right. else is there? Right. Like you can see the evidence of that. Yeah. Yep. Good. Last question, Drew Madden. I didn't have a chance to actually copy paste this because he submitted it after I printed the thing. Make sure you submit your question faster. But basically, he's writing some worship songs and he's recording some stuff. And he asks, what kind of themes does the church need more of in Mm, worship songs? Great question. You know where my mind immediately went, uh, mainly because we've talked about this with Stephen, our worship minister here, is laments. Laments, yes. I mean, where is the space in the church, in corporate worship, for people to be sad at the feet of Jesus? Yeah. Yeah. 
and at the same time trusting in his grace mm-hmm. to be like you know psalm 42 um why so downcast all my soul put your hope in god yep you know we need songs like that yep i think we need more songs that are doctrinally rich about the holy spirit too yep um you know the, the holy there's there's tons of songs out there that talk about the holy spirit but there's a lot of um sensational kind of language that to me presents the person of the Holy Spirit as a mist, a wind, yep. a chill bump. I think good doctrinally rich songs about the Holy Spirit's role in our lives as our teacher, our mm-hmm. comforter, uh, convictor of sin, um, empowering us in relationships, mm-hmm. bringing to our remembrance all that Jesus taught, enabling us to bear witness. Yep. Um, you know, all even what you read on Sunday for the call to worship, you know, don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual yep. songs. Yep. You know, we don't think of that as being an outgrowth of being Spirit-filled. Right. Yeah, it's true. Uh, also, maybe um, manly songs about contending for the faith. Uh, songs that you can sing. Uh, what was it? C.S. Lewis who, who talked about, like, men without chess. Mm-hmm. Like, being able to sing from the chest kind of thing. Um one of the interesting things when you compare, because you know we love the hymns, the old ones, but one of the interesting things when you compare the hymns to the Psalms is none of the hymn writers ever have enemies. Hmm. Like nobody's ever trying to kill them for their faith. Yeah. <laughs> when you know, like half of David's Psalms are, "Hey God, this guy's trying to kill me. Can you take care of that?" <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, maybe we need some songs like that. Yeah. I mean, it. You know, I, th- I think of. Um the body they may kill, his truth abideth still. You know, that yep. was probably the one of the closest things you t- to yep. what you're talking about. Yep. But yep. Uh, certainly, I mean, songs that help us think well about... You, you ask, he asked the question, you know, if you go through the Psalms and look at the different aspects of life and faith that are addressed in the Psalms, yeah, like that could give you a good sense of where at least the Western American church is lacking yes. from a worship standpoint. If if something jumps out at you as surprising, you should probably write a song about it. Yeah. Or maybe just adapt that psalm. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, and and, in, and particularly in America, like we do not like the imprecatory stuff because we don't read it Christologically. Yeah, that's true. Because, that's true. Because like, blessed is he who smashes their babies on the rocks. Mm. Read that Christologically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I don't know, man. That's a, that's a really, really good question, and um, I, I, I've given a couple of opinions. I would just encourage, you know, the songwriters that listen to us to to think outside the box, man. You know, don't don't just go with the easily repeatable lyrics. Um, yep. I'm all for a song having a good hook. Oh yeah, I'm all oh, for yeah. it being e- easy. You know, very singable. Um, uh, you know, the melody to be catchy enough that the congregation can join in quickly, mm-hmm. even if it's new, like those are things that I think are worth considering, but you know, theologically, I think there's a lot of room for the church to grow. There's uh, yeah. There's also a lot of room for the church to grow and being trained musically. I think, mm-hmm. uh, part of the whole liberal arts education, like the whole liberal doesn't mean like Democrats. It, it's from the Latin for 
liberty, mm-hmm. right? This is a free man's education. And when you're free, you, you learn a little bit about rhetoric and a little bit about music and all this kind of stuff, which should tell you a little bit about our education system, which basically teaches you to be a cog, mm-hmm. right? Uh, they don't really care if you're musical. We just need you in the STEM fields. Uh, and so we have a lot of musical illiteracy, which is one of the reasons I think why men don't sing as much in church is because they don't have a basis to pick out. Okay, I'm not a tenor. I'm a baritone. So yeah. so maybe I follow what the bass guitar is playing mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, so I think there's a lot of room for that too. I've, I've floated that very briefly with Steven. So maybe I need to follow up with him and be like, hey. You know, historically, th- this is something we've lost because it, there was so much effort made in the church to equip people not only with good theologically rich songs, but, but enough knowledge musically to be able to sing them. Yep. I think I mentioned on the podcast about shape notes. Did mm-hmm. I talk about that one time? Yeah, yeah, and and I grew up with shape notes. You grew up with shape. With, we with talked the church about of that. Christ. Yeah. yeah. So that that was all an effort to help people learn how to sing. Yep. Um, and we just don't do that anymore, and um, at least not not with those kind of intentional efforts. Right. So maybe that's something we can start here too. We're just all over the place today, and and at this church, we're just we got pokers in the fire. Anyway, I'm gonna hit that thing so we don't ramble on too much longer. So thanks for listening to the Westminster Effects Doxology Podcast. Go love God, love your neighbor, make some music. We'll see you next time. <laughs>